Hello. Welcome to Why Are We Talking About Rabbits? For the remainder of the show, I will speak using this voice, which will make you wonder why you hit play. Also, I'm wearing a red hat today. On Watar. <laughs> Guys, Nicholas Kotar joins us today on our show, which takes the old things and the new things and jams them together and asks, what is the nature of our modern life? And can we learn something about how we live from the way folks lived before the Enlightenment? We call people of today, well, people who love, I don't know, science, we call them the light people after the Enlightenment. Today, we talk to a light person because if you're alive today, you've imbibed the Enlightenment. We talk to Nicholas Kotar, a really, really, what I got to say, really, can I just say an exceptional writer of epic fantasy inspired by Russian fairy tales and folk tales. He's just top notch. He's got a great, uh, great brand new project coming out for Christmas. I highly recommend you go get his book, uh, The Son of the Deathless. And he's putting together something called Jola Bokaflud. And he'll tell you about it, among other things, including our conversation about friendly fire. And of course, what happens when the universal narrative. Well, what happens when it's not universal anymore? That's today. That's Nick Kotar and I talking about all things old and new, like only he can, on Watar. You've got uh, The Son of the Deathless coming out. And as a writer, as someone trying to say something of import, why did you do this book? What's going on? <clears throat> Well, why did I do it? Um, because I needed to put in story a bunch of things that have been occurring to me a lot. A um, bunch of ideas that keep bumping into my head and trying to trying to come out through my mouth, which is not always a good idea. <laughs> Here's the first. There's this do tension. You, do you have a venue for people listening to you? This is a good question. I think people want to ask writers this. Could you get up somewhere other than with your family and just... Do you have an audience to hear your words? You mean like to get up on stage? Yeah, or somewhere not in your book to share your ideas. I wonder well, if you I mean, did, that's... would you write? No, I do. I mean, I, I have a little I have a little YouTube channel. I have a little uh, Patreon community. Mm -hmm. um, and there's occasional, you know, in-person things like with, with Benedict Sheen I've done. Uh, concerts and and other uh, things. Also, I teach a course right uh, in in writing. This mm -hmm. there's a uh, Saint Basil's uh, College of Creative Writing, which is also a place for me to to hash out the ideas. No, so I mean, there's no there's no big main stage. Um, I also, the people also invite me to to talk at different places, but um, there's this tension, right? There's this tension between um, the the rational analyst, the person who wants to uh, make sense of everything especially in a time when things are falling apart very rapidly. And also in a time when there are other people who are articulating what's going on and suggesting interesting yeah, paths forward. Yeah, yeah, right. So, yeah. but a lot of them are talking in, are talking very, they're all prophets, right? All of them in some, in some way. Prophets have a diff, have difficult language. So I've always felt like I want to 
tell it in a way that that makes sense to me so that as i'm saying it out loud i've harmonized it in a way that that's that makes sense to me and hopefully that means that other people are going to understand it as well because it's gone through you know before, kind of analytical before we get into your new book is it you know the freudian impulse is to say writing is something like therapy yeah, that's that's a, that I mean, you, you, there's that's like a meme thing, right? That that's that's right. uh that is a meme. There there are a lot of memes about how writer how writers write their way out of personal problems. I don't know. I mean, maybe it's 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 different though for me. Um, a lot of a lot of writers say if I didn't write, I'd be crazy, or if you know if I didn't write, I wouldn't know what to do with myself, or I can't not write, and all those things are true to a certain extent. But um, so I don't want to like use myself as a as an avatar for a generation or a society but it it does seem to me like there's a tension that we in the west have between the impulse to um rationalize everything analytically yeah there you go to to give a a definition a clear uh, rational understanding of what's going on and to experience the thing in itself because to experience the thing in itself you can't you must not rationalize it i was listening to a, a conversation with Martin Shaw, Dr. Martin Shaw, who's a um, who's a uh, mythologist, but also a storyteller, mm-hmm. like a PhD in mythology, but also a storyteller. Mm-hmm. And I think he encapsulates that tension in himself, um, as a lot of Westerners do, in the sense that he's he goes on stage and he tells the story, right? But in, there are some books that he writes that are proper scholarly um, examinations of the analytical side of mythology. Like, where did this come from? Where's that sub story coming from? How does it add with that other sub story? What's the history of it? You know, like the kind of thing that tends to kill stories. Yeah. I was just going to say exactly. So he, in this, in this um, interview that I was listening to, he said, as an, as advice to other potential storytellers, he says, you must never, when you are telling the story, you must never stop in the middle at the end at a natural stopping point and say, well, that chapter meant this or that character is an archetype of this because as soon as you do that, you've killed the story. And I've, I've always felt that very strongly that kind of like, if you're in storyteller mode, you must not rationalize. You must take away that side of your brain completely. So when, so that's my fiction. That's me transmuting the, my stories are me transmuting the, the rational reality, the reality of things, ideas, people, and putting it into a form that doesn't really talk to the brain. I I think as a deacon too, you probably yeah. know better than I do, but I stand in liturgy. Yeah. You can't stop and rationalize liturgy either. No. Process <laughs> prayer, right? You no, you must not. If you do, then you're not you're not in the kingdom anymore. <laughs> right. You can't stop and teach it, per se. What no, I mean the, the sermon has its place, but then the sermon isn't analytical rationalization either. The sermon is story. Right. So it's it fits within within the the same kind of uh structure as as a liturgy itself it's not taking you out but that's not always not every not all sermonizers do this unfortunately you know like i think i think you can you can really tell the really good priests the priests who really sermonize well and they're the ones that understand that they're in the story and they're telling they're telling the story right they're not they're, they're not going back and like talking about the different translations of this and what that might mean in the original Hebrew things. I mean, although that could work, I suppose, if you could weave it into the story. But I think all too often the the Western kind of Western temptation is to 
is as though that there as though there's a, a greater uh, importance to that rational thing of putting things in their right. proper places. Lately, help me with this. Lately, I can't get away from this idea. It's it's everybody I'm talking to on the pod, but also almost in life. Dissection yeah. seems to be the preeminent expression of modernity. Like yeah, or or postmodernity. I think I think it's even. You think it's postmodernity. I mean, modernity or postmodernism, right? I mean, you're right. Yeah. I just think of you know Da Vinci and these guys, and and I'm yeah, sorry. Oh yeah. Oh, in yeah. that sense, yes, 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 yes. yes and yes. then because I do it. It's not like I'm pointing. Yeah, me too. Yeah, me you know, too. Even, even at these tables, I'm the Tamada, and I'm trying to actually unify. There's all this art going through this toasting. And then yeah. you're like, now I'm analyzing that person's toast, and it's really weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like a habit. Yeah. I was trained that way. You know, my brother and I have this. And sometimes it's for the for the good, I guess. Sometimes it can be. But it, again, it's all, it's all in its proper sphere, I think. Right. So... That's the that's the tension to figure out which one which which part of you needs to needs to be active at any moment, right? I t I talk a lot about kind of bypassing the the rational mind in storytelling and not and you know kind of because to avoid propaganda, but my for myself, I I need that rash I need to develop that rational that analytical that vision not in the prophetic sense but in the sense of like you know imagining what the business, my business is going to be like in five years, that sort of visioning, right? The, the, the narrow sense of it. Um, that's, it's an important part of how I, yeah. how my brain works. So I can't just turn that stuff off. Yeah. But, I don't but think it can't get into to, my storytelling. As, as Easterners or old worlders, we're not asked yeah. to turn it off. It's more like fit in, yeah. in its proper place. Right. Yes. And, and to, and, and not to forget what that proper place is, because I think too often, whether we like it or not, I think it's an expectation we have of ourselves that it's a wrong expectation that we need to be the really? ones that are the smartest in the room. That's right. Right. That is brilliant. But like, who is it that that's impressing everybody really at, at the heart of things? It's not the smartest person in the room. It's, it's the Paul Kings North. Not that he's not smart, the smartest person he might be, but, um, no, but he's letting, he doesn't lean on that through. Something yes, else is coming yes. through, not his smarts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which you know, we and that's the thing that or whatever. But yeah, well, yes, of course, but not just right. It's not like boom, I've been inhabited by right, this thing and I can right, speak tongues. Right. It's right. it's a dance. It's a collaboration. It's a conversation. It's it, it's, it's almost like the dross of humility. It's like what yeah. happens in a humble moment. That's why. I always say I want to listen to the most humble person in the room because they're actually going to say something probably closer to true because they can't really get around it because they don't want to puff it up. My wife was saying yeah. how we were just listening. I was listening to football. Okay. I was driving home, listening to some football. Yeah. And then a commercial came on. She was like, listen, can you just make sure we don't ever hear commercials? She's like, yeah. she's, she's like, like, it's like a lie. It's like someone's just telling a lie into the, I said, well, well it is literally it is though. Right. It's nuts. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. But then no, even even the structure of it, because the structure of it is like it's mythological, right? So all all commercials follow a storytelling structure, which is mythological in nature. Right, so they're right. they're trying to use a a heart structure to to tell a a materialist message. It's that's why it jars. If you're paying attention, it 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 hurts. <laughs> it does, right? Because it's it's the heart 
form without the heart. Yes. Yes. Like, Wait a minute. Something's disconnected here. That's interesting. Right. And by the way, it's very it's easy to be suckered into thinking that it, then that's that that's a good thing. Like, okay, that's how we should do things. I mean, you have books, you have courses, you have you know gurus telling businesses how to structure their messages as a story, as a narrative, as a because. And I see this all the time. And I'm going to be. I I think I'm going to be very um, annoying to a lot of people in this conversation if you let me. I but. But I've noticed this a lot in discussions of the rings of power on, on social media, like the rings of power is a commercial. It's not, it's not the heart. It's a commercial. It's a commercial for Amazon. Um, in the sense that we're talking about it right now, because it has, it, it, it mimics a lot of the structures or tries to very like it's, it's pretending, but there's no heart to it. It, you end up with this, like, you know, acid taste in your mouth, or I do at least. But a lot of people who love Tolkien, and I'm, uh, I'm looking at just random people posting on on random groups on Facebook for the most part. They're they love it. They're like, this is great. We haven't had a decent Tolkien story in a long time. And I'm like, I I want to be like, okay, it's not the worst thing I've ever seen. Um, but I think that might be why it's so bad, because if it was egregious and horrible and and wore its and more it's materialism and it's and it's rottenness on its sleeve very obviously like if it was very clear that it's being subvertive then it would almost be better than this half-hearted attempt at making something tolkien shaped that's got nothing in the inside or like glimmers like there's this scene that that i keep coming back to i don't know if you've seen it, seen it or not but I, I went only a couple episodes deep and then i got yeah it. it's I mean i probably wouldn't have um, except that i was i get why people watch it. it i get it yeah. that's not that's fine, but I just I just didn't. I mean, fine. If you want to just look at it on the level of, of simple enjoyment, you're not going to – I mean, there's no point in arguing that. But my point is that people are like, why aren't you allowing for the faults considering that it's pretty good and it's – the important thing is that we have a kind of not not uh, a terrible piece of content that, that has at its heart the, the, the themes and the, and the uh, worldview of Tolkien. And my point is like you guys are being lied to. It's like just like a commercial is structured like a three-act novel, and you are the hero that's going to come through it and be transformed at the end by the purchase of the thing, right? Um, this is like a bunch of externals that are promising you uh, a transformation, but the transformation doesn't come, and in fact, it's much worse than that. It's it's like an anti-transformation. Um, it precise not because it's horrible. Uh, it's not. It's competent but because at its heart is not the message of Tolkien it's something else and it's you see this in in the scene like this one scene that, that I keep coming back to it's this you know how the the Tolkien the Peter Jackson Tolkien uh, trope is like sweeping visuals operatic music slow motion ex- extreme close-up on faces in a moment of that's supposed to you know evoke emotional resonance right when when it works in the Peter Jackson movies, it works because there's an actual emotional moment happening on screen and there's a reason for resonance between the audience and the characters on screen because it's something that's really authentic and real. Um, and so then then the trappings, right, the externals, the, the music, the lighting, the, the sweeping visuals, they heighten that emotional response and it kind of mo- mo- in, in an emotionally manipulative way not not a bad thing necessarily especially if it's driving you towards a positive kind of emotion uh it it heightens the thing that's already there but if the thing isn't there and you're trying to manufacture it by just putting the trappings uh 
if you're paying attention, meaning if you if you regularly cultivate that that quality that sees deeper, right? That sees uh, to to the deeper reality of things instead of just skimming on the surface of things. Mm-hmm. And this is something we all have to work on. It's not something that some people have and right. some people don't. It's something that you need to constantly cultivate within yourself by doing by going out and seeking things that are beautiful because the beautiful shatters your conceptions about what's true because beauty is not rationality. It's not harmony in the, in the sense of perfect uh, equations fitting, uh, fitting on either side of an equal sign. So there's this scene in, uh, in the rings of power where uh, two characters are running from a bunch of orcs and they run into a field and the sun comes out and it's gorgeous. And the, the music is, is absolutely sweeping and the the elf comes out and he's holding his sword out in a very silly way but it looks very evocative it's perfect for you know merch uh and and the the orcs come to the edge of the of the forest line and they they can't come out because the sun burns them except that they've been coming out into the sun at random times during this during the series already and we so it's it's inconsistent and they're looking at it and they're like there's this it's a field and there's a there's a elf in the middle of it and we can't get there oh, it's horrible I can't oh, I'm being defeated by good except they all have arrows and bows and they could have just shot them, right so um, it wouldn't have been an issue because the arrows and, and they're not affected by the sun the arrows can tell. fly through the sun yes yes they can right <laughs> even if the orcs can't come out right um, so it's this like oh wow beautiful music great incredible visuals and brave warrior taking a last stand to protect his beloved all these things that should be like yes, and it's total it's total nonsense because the scene doesn't make any sense. Right? Is it is it inattentiveness or maybe a blindness to what you talk about? You talk about this in your classes and on your website. The grand narrative. There's a grand narrative that seems to be giving way to like mini narratives or something. Yeah, is that have to do with why it feels slight or or weak or cheap? So what you're yes I think I think that I think that's some of it some of it's just bad writing and, and inattentiveness and uh, trying to please too many too many different demographics because if you have something that's supposed to be and they're open about this they were open about this, this has to be uh, the greatest hit on television since whatever right the, they were which, which uh, is numbers they need numbers yes so you're gonna do that by appealing to everybody which. Yeah. You can't do so there it's it's doomed to failure in that sense but um so in terms of grand narrative versus, versus small narratives there's a great article in the new york times i can't believe i just said that yes. <laughs> <laughs> hey mark that jeremy's our editor yeah. hey, mark that jeremy <laughs> we'll, put that, we'll put that out later <laughs> no 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 it's fine keep it in um it's we're called gonna, don't we're, make we're gonna a make Tolkien it a meme same. we're gonna make it a meme it's gonna be fun. yeah you might have to yeah it's yeah yeah it's called don't make a please don't make a tolkien cinematic universe uh and it's a great article um it's it's an op-ed it's a great article by a professor of uh, english i think richard roland knows him personally so you can vouch to the man's character and that character's intelligence so if richard roland gives a positive then i'm okay with it okay um and he's, he basically makes makes the point that, and this is before the, the show came out, so he was kind of treading on, on dangerous ground, but he said, the likelihood that in this generation, this, this new young generation that's coming up in, in Hollywood and in, uh, and in the publishing world and in media in general, storytelling in general, the likelihood that they have the same level of 
immersion in the grand narrative of Western Christendom, as Tolkien was. Now, we can talk about, there can be a longer, more nuanced conversation about what is the value of Western Christendom and whether there isn't some value to expanding that and and to considering that perhaps just, you know, being pro-Western all the time with no qualifications might be a bad thing. But let's just look at what Tolkien was, a man steeped in the culture of his people, in the culture of his religion, in the culture of his time, and in the culture of his um, age. Yeah? Okay. Western Christendom. And steeped in that to the bone so that anything that came out of him simultaneously has his own storytelling but also has Sir Gawain and the Green Knight has Arthur, it has the Kalevala it has you know myths that, that stretch back thousands of years it has fairy tales that have been told for thousands of years at, at, at you know firesides then you have these so that is in itself a vision that is fed by that. that's a vision that's fed by a lot of sources of, of pure and beautiful water. Yeah. Okay. And from those many sources, there was a kind of, I, I have to be careful about how to say this, a, a, a large single unified culture in the West that was Christian. Right. And so from that stream, he, he takes a little stream and he creates this thing, right? This, the Lord of the Rings, some really in uh, the Hobbit. Why does it resonate with so many people? Because the argument that the writer is making is that it's because of the depth of Tolkien, the the man. Because he was steeped in so much of this deep abiding tradition that had been passed on by his elders, shall we say. Yeah. So there's there's a kind of tradition in the proper sense being passed on. These movie makers don't have that. Nor are they int- nor do, nor are they aware of the fact that they don't have it. Correct. And I believe that's true. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I think the way that it came out proves it. So what's interesting is that there's an attitude that can compensate for the lack of knowledge. And Peter Jackson did that. He was very conscious and very open and very public about the fact. Now, I'm not a, like a huge fan of uh, of the Peter Jackson movies. I think some of them are really good. There's a lot of things that, that they did wrong. Mm-hmm. So I'm not I'm not kind of holding them up as a kind of paragon. There's some beautiful things. There's there's some not so good things. But at the very least, what he did, one of the things he did right was that he was very clear. Our message, our values, what we think is important, our story, yeah, our mini narrative, has no place in our in our adaptation of the Lord of the Rings. That would be disrespectful yeah. of the professor. He called him the professor, capital P, right? Okay. You hear nothing of that sort of thing from from these uh, showrunners. And if you do, they're, it's it's disingenuous because it's it's not coming out. Well, it's, but not what they, unlike, well, it's not unlike the iconographer who f- first starts with that which was our, which is already, and mm-hmm. then they build on that which is, and then don't put their name on it. And so, yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's a beautiful, John. Respect, that's exactly yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that that's so true, and that's an interesting that's an interesting comparison because I've actually iconography seems to be like talking about iconography right now seems to be a very rich arena to talk about creativity. Oddly enough, because right. because I think we've come to a point for a lot of people where iconography has become a static thing that you just copy without putting in any of your. Um, artistic talents, and then you have people like Father Silwan Justiniano, who who is a beautiful bearer of tradition, but who you know who paints icons that are that are very unique, 
and very beautiful, but are within a tradition. And yes, he doesn't sign them. Exactly. But they're, right. So yeah, that's, I love that. I love that. That's, that's a great insight, John. Love it. But you're saying something that's super relevant though, for like, even like a 22 year old dude who's can't wait. Especially. Especially yeah, for right to sit on a couch with his lady and watch the whatever Netflix is. It's something like don't be. Is it not disconnected? Don't don't be untethered. Like don't be afraid to be untethered. Like there's nothing. You're not losing humanity because you are yeah. um, uh, bowing. Yeah, it's not just fear though. I th- I think it's it's hatred. So there, I had this. I'm getting in trouble again. I don't care. I had this very weird. Um, experience recently, and I'm not going to name any names, um, but it was it was a public forum where I was giving a, a talk about uh, storytelling and why it's important right now. And my my kind of central point was that uh, whatever um, center center stage this culture had, whether it's you know bestseller whose whose uh, covers are on the sides of buses and that everybody's reading as soon as they come out. Or the blockbuster film that, you know, the avatar that everybody watches and everybody talks about, that's gone. It's not there anymore. Like the movies that come out in their first weekends, they don't make the kind of money they used to. And even if they do, that money drops off significantly almost always. And it's niche interest. It's not wide interest anymore. And my point was that means that Christian storytellers need to um, not seek for the center stage, but rather take advantage of the fact that there is no center stage to really go deep and do that thing that Tolkien did, right? Really dive deep into your own culture. Mm-hmm. But all these people in the audience were like, we're American, what culture, right? Meaning like, this is a young country. Wow, that is, I wanted to ask you that. Yeah. What are we digging into? So that's where the that's where a really strange thing happens. And I've seen this uh for a long like manifest itself uh for years now. And it's one of two things. One is either you ex- you embrace the in a very postmodern way, but in a good postmodern way, the culture of another people and make it your own. Meaning you come to orthodoxy in a very ethnic parish for example and you consciously adopt not the mannerisms of the ethnic but the way of being the ethos of that people nick nick i know what you're doing we started a georgian restaurant there's four white boys in there doing the thing with a Georgian who shows up every now and then. And we did it because out of respect, the exact thing that you're talking about, but we can't put it all on. We can't put it all because because of cultural appropriation, right? (laughs) Well, well, because someone's (laughs) going to come and scream at us, but but really because we can't, we're not capable because we're not Georgian, but the parts that we are, we fully embrace and share. So there's the humility thing again. So this is a very difficult path. It's a path that takes a very long time. It's the path of the Russian people after baptism, all right? It took hundreds of years to manifest. Right. Great point. Great when point. they became Orthodox, they they put on the Greek thing. Some of the Metropolitans didn't speak Russian. And of course, there's some tension there. I'm not talking about the everyday reality of being ruled by Greek-speaking Metropolitan and the annoyance of not being able to talk to your uh, to your bishop in the same language. That's 
particular reality. What I'm talking about is a larger thing, right? So that's difficult mm-hmm. because it requires humility and requires a lot of patience. And it requires 300 to, years the Russians were yes. working with the Greeks. So you say that, right? The, the term, the, the exact number 300 years, it's not accidental. Um, I was listening to a, to a, 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 a conversation with a, a Russian musicologist. And this was only for a Russian audience, but you can extend it outwards uh, if you if you choose to. So he was talking with the correspondent about how Russia doesn't have an authentic culture anymore in the wake of the breakdown of the Soviet Union, in the wake of the, of the 90s. The 90s were a, were a cultural uh, disaster for Russia. It was, it was an attempt to kind of embrace all kinds of Western things, which have nothing in common with what it means to be Russian for the last thousand years. It didn't take, it caused a, a very deep fissure in, in the in the social fabric of, of what it means to be Russian. It's what's part of what's continuing to drive the, the intense um, dislike that a lot of Russians have for the West at large. And of course that has political ramifications as we know. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Wow. So, but um, in that context, for talking for a Russian audience, this, uh, this musicologist, he said, do you want authentic culture? And the correspondent goes, yeah. Well, he says, okay, well then go take your family, move to a village and live there for 300 years. <laughs> By the way, so, right and america's me. been gone been around for how long right so that's that's a difficult thing so the re- the reaction to that then is how dare you force your ethnocentrism on me how dare you suggest that a unifying single large story be necessary i choose to highlight the many beautiful stories of those around me. And I choose the the multi, the approach of the multiple, the, the many, many little beautiful stories of individuals and individual groups, which of course is a wonderful thing, right? But notice that it's not the way it's often manifested. And I'm talking specifically within the within the Orthodox cultural context, but it, it is reflected in the larger social context in the in in America and in the West. Don't tell me that we need to be that we need to have as a arch, not an archetype, but as a um, as a model something other than what we are already. Okay. I am what I feel. I am what I want. That is beautiful. And don't you dare suggest anything else. Okay. So, so do this. Hold on one second. Yeah. Because. Yeah. As a Russian emigre of sorts. Yes. And this is where it gets tricky, right? <laughs> because, 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 no, but you might be able to give us insight. I was born here. Yeah. And, um, well, so was I. <laughs> so were you, but you're a really actually good example, guys, if you know him. And if you don't, go check it out. He, you really are, you know, I was sitting at your house listening. You're, you get Russia. So let me ask you this. I like when Americans tell the American story. They should. Yeah. I mean, I think of Hemingway as doing that really well, to be perfectly yeah. honest. What would it be today for an American writer to dig down? What What is the part of our story, the American story, that would fit with something like the universal story? Is yeah. it creativity? What is the thing? I don't know that we can say. I mean, no, I we think can't. there is something, but what is it? Well, we haven't found it yet because we're only 200 whatever years old. That's my point mm. is that the, I see. The, I see. the desire to, to find it and to determine so there's two things, right? One is let's let's find the American story, let's tell it, let's agree what it is. Not possible. Right? We're a young country, we're still working through a lot of things. Plus, we didn't, you know, we came to life in the industrial and, and internet age. So we might be coming to, to our cultural end even before we were born, effectively. It's like an yeah. it's like this stillbirth 
culturally speaking, because I don't know how you can have a unified American culture in this in this climate where everything. Mul- you don't mul- think it's the constitution or something like uh, like a like yeah, a but what about look, look at what this something? something, but look at what you know. So many strong cultural forces trying to break that down. You know, it's not 1776; it's 1619, right? It's not Christianity; it's Stoicism. Right, right. It's you know like. Let's not do this thing because because of the sins of the church or because of the sins of, of the white man because of right things that are historically of course accurate but blown way out of proportion. So, to an American story that, told right now, yeah, maybe has to sound confusing and and yes. almost like the nature of a rivulet and not the river. Almost like, yes, maybe yes. that is well, the nature of our story. Well, it could be. Yeah, at least it, it is right now because there's so many different streams. But you harmony is created out of the intertwining of different things, right? I mean, it's what is what is a loom? Why why is a loom constantly show up in the in the mythic imagination of of the intertwining of the fates? Why is it a loom? It's because you're taking things that are inherently not like and putting them into a thing that is larger than the individual strands and becomes a thing in and of itself, but in which each individual strand is vitally important. So it's both. It's unifying story and multi- and multiplicity in harmony. Oh. But that's really hard. And it re- I think I think it requires humility and it requires patience. I mean Yeah, that's right. Patience and humility. Yeah, I like that. And we don't have a lot of that these days. No, nobody does. It's almost like everybody thinks that like there's this apocalyptic thing in the air, right? Like something's going to end any second now. So we need to figure it out before it's over. Can I take a break and before I do offer you a toast? Yes. Usually we start with this. But you know, we go we, we okay, ran you, away. You toast with coffee as you wish. It doesn't matter. This actually has alcohol in it. So oh it does. I'm just having a little sip here of scotch. But not because it's Monday. It's because we have this beautiful guest on, guys, and that's what we're doing. Uh in the tradition, in the Georgian tradition, I'll do one that you would hear maybe early in the dinner. Uh, and it would be to uh, the nature, right? The blending, the wonder, the 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 loom that blends mm-hmm. uh, men and women together in a in a proper way, where one is sort of like the other. And as Christ, as we know, Christ says, "In Christ there is no man or woman," but somehow there remains man, and somehow there remains woman. Hopefully, let's toast to America finding out where the intersection is. So, yes, thank you, Marjos. To you, the, the proper people. intersectionality. <laughs> <laughs> and let's take one second. Swish. Uh, welcome, Molly. This is yes, two minutes. Thank you. This is two minutes with you, super supporter. You, if there's a thing we've offered, you've done it. You've gone on a KP journey. You take the night yep. classes. Now you're going to join the wine and class club. And then yep. what else? You eat haja puri. You just like. I make it. You. I know. make it. You don't I aggressively, I aggressively promote mm. Watar and First Things. By it. You make Georgian No, not the, not the category. No, no, no. That would work too, though. Can you imagine? Hey, listen to this show. Here's some cheese bread. I don't know. It's an option. Is that... A, you need that... to be open. Again, you're too narrow right now. Well... You're too narrow. Do we sell the cheese bread at your telephone? telephone and I, I feel like when you suggested we do a telephone it was with an f like it was a spanish telethon oh telephone telephone um yeah you could do both you could do a telethon and a telephone again 
broader audience. So maybe you should do that. Well, here's an idea. Okay, so, uh, you know, like PBS and stuff, they do like these things where you call in. I don't know if they do it anymore, but uh, you know, like if you call now, then you get like this video set. Well, like you could do like a set of like Kachipuri and people won't know until they get it that they're going to be like day old Kachipuri, but it's still exciting, right? So you could do like, get like a complete Georgian feast, uh, you know, and then- And then we ship it to them? And then ship it to them. Yeah, or you could do like pickups only. Um, Why is is the advertiser's voice angry? Is that part of the appeal? It's not angry, it's excited. It's excited. Oh. It's excited about what First Things is do- First Things is doing. Um, <laughs> I'm excited. Jenny first thing. Uh, let's do. Let, can I ask you a question? Um, this universal story. Richard Roland talks about it. Mm-hmm. Really all, I think, all the really most interesting sort of internet subculture people, they're starting mm-hmm. to return to the idea of a, of a universal narrative. Yeah. And everyone's a little afraid to say what it is. Can I just? Are there parts of it we can identify? So I, I made a list. Yeah. Redemption or resurrection. Don't for people out there not not Christian, don't don't hear Christ. You can. Mm-hmm. Is, is that something that needs to get in to sort of a universal narrative? Good versus evil. This is Dostoevsky, a lot of this. He says yeah. you got to have good versus evil in a in a story. He's not saying yeah. that you have to, you know. It's not dumb the way he's, but it's got to be in the fabric. Here's another one. Um, Something like uh, uh, Diavolos and Symbolos or some unity versus disintegration or integration Mm -hmm. versus disintegration. Male versus female. Ah, okay. You would put that in something like the universal narrative. Yeah, for sure. I would too. Why does that seem like we were getting in trouble for saying that? Isn't that odd? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't understand it. Um, I mean, I can understand it with my rational mind. I can understand it with my rational Why mind. Why that would cause controversy to say? Yeah, and and it's and the controversies are often particular and in, it, with specific people. And I understand that that there are reasons why those specific people with whom I have a disagreement would disagree with me on this larger, more universal point. Mm-hmm. My my sadness is that it seems like there is a, increasingly an inability to rise above the. Of, above one's particular reality, like the things that we encounter on a daily basis, to see above that the possibility and potential of there being a model for every level of re- of our reality, from the totally spiritual, the cosmic, to the social, to the local, to the familial, to the personal, right? All of those levels talk to each other they all have the same shape. Right. They can. They all can have the same shape. And I think that it, it's like this, right? So Jonathan uh, Peugeot had a conversation with, um, we may have talked about this, but in, if I did, if we did, I apologize, with a, with another um, artist who does graphic novels. And that they were talking about the story of, uh, of the Gospels as the model for storytellers, as the, quote, greatest story ever told. Usually when we hear that phrase, it's it's a little bit saccharine. It's a little bit kind of you know, blonde Jesus. On, yeah, on the wall. I, right. right. I, it's what's his name, Zeffirelli and some soft yes. tone, soft yes. tone Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. But what I mean is greatest story in the sense of the the best shaped narrative, 
that is the fulfillment of all the stories that came before it and the model for all stories that come after it, mm-hmm. um, which is something that Tolkien argues for in his essay on fairy stories, where he says that all the, all the uh, myths were structured in the same way as the coming of Christ on some intrinsic level, if not in the details, then in the, in the larger swaths of the thing. Mm-hmm. And then everything that comes afterwards is, ne- is necessarily a reflection of it because that's the one myth that happened in history. It's a historical myth. It's a true myth, right? Um, And this this other author, this other artist, when Jonathan was suggesting the idea to him, was like, well, what's the point of my writing a story then? Because the greatest story has already been told. So this is that that fear that if there is a model of perfection or a model of striving towards, or it's not, it's perfection, not in the sense of static, but because perfection is not static. It's, it's forever increasing. It's something that's, always becoming more mm-hmm. uh right because if we believe in an in, in an infinite god then that means that our striving towards him can never be complete right, right. it's always it's, it's a never-ending process right so but to make that jump from i as a personal teller of stories as a human being with a particular reality am squashed by the reality of this greater thing that has already happened to I am a particular human being who can be fulfilled by the constant striving and re- kind of rehashing or recapitulation of that story in my life again and again and again. So every story I tell is not is potentially better because it's closer to the model or every act that I do is potentially better because it's closer to the model. I mean, I would think that that was, that's the way I try to explain the universe, the universal stories, right? The fact that, that there are these trends that show up everywhere that, that are good because they bring people together for, who are disparate. And again and again and again, I have people going, stop. When you have a monolithic, I, hate, I don't like using that word because it makes people angry, culture, the, the marginalized get trampled. <clears throat> Those on the oh. edge get squished, right? No, but it takes a, some odd degree of ego to imagine that you're going to be the one to tell the greatest story. But because yes. isn't that that person, let's call whoever that person is you were talking to, aren't they holding out for the possibility that they're the one? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that are going to tell. I'll tell you a quick, I was in uh, living in West Africa and the tradition there is when you go to a new village and I was going to many new villages to do work. You always mm-hmm. bring cola nuts and you you wrap them in the cola leaf and then you offer them to the chief. Mm-hmm. Well, I had this stupid idea that he must get sick of cola nuts. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you see, you can see. Yes, I coming. see where this is going. <laughs> and so like I got some stuff from the local market and like put like a little American postcard in there and gave it to him. I swear to you, I can Gift still basket. picture his face. He opened it and looked at it and was like, he what is this and then he dropped it on the ground <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs> because he's like where are the cola nuts man that's right now maybe i could have got like cool cola nuts but i yes. switched all the way out and then i wasn't a part of the big grand story i was the outsider and i don't yeah. think that's a good way to why can't he plug in this writer you're talking I, it's something about it individualism right it's egotism it's something like that well it's it's i don't think it's that i think it's that if you don't have an object of worship you have no other option except to eventually come to worship yourself oh wow you took it yeah you took it yeah that's right sorry i mean like we were going to be soft about it but no right (laughs) Uh, that's nihil though that's nihil oh of course 
but I, to to recognize that is a terrifying reality to recognize that you are nothing because if that's if you implicitly have so the russian philosopher ivan ilian has a wonderful book that i hope to publish a translation of soon eventually maybe next year um it's called the, the roots of our spiritual crisis and his first chapter is you got to do that because i read his it, other i think you actually sent me his other little book it's i might have book. yeah yeah it's yeah. a great book it's really good yeah but this one's even better um where he makes he makes a, a, a strong well-reasoned argument that there is no such person as a person without faith and his, his point is that you cannot you could it's absolutely possible for a person not to believe in the divine it's absolutely a person possible for a person not to believe in god in anything supernatural but it's impossible to find a person without faith what does that mean that means that if you don't believe in things that are greater than you in the possibility of the perfect to which you aspire then the object of your faith and it is faith as in worship is going to have to be something else so what is it going to be yeah. is it going to be totalitarianism is it going to be power is it going to be self is it going to be something whatever it is it's going to be an imperfect and an impermanent object yeah not something to which you can strive but a lot of people don't think that way they don't understand that they they will perfectly honestly say i have no faith in anything a lot of people do say this we lost a sense of theanthropos the yes. idea that we're more than our animal self yeah so dangerous yes and by the way i will say that there is that that um the christian monoculture the west is not without guilt in this because the kind of embrace of the materialist superstructure of the enemies of Christianity in the 19th century has led to the thing that pushes away people like Paul Kingsnorth and Martin Shaw. So when I was a kid, I remember very clearly this very interesting scene. I was at a, a zoo. I must have been 10, something like this. And uh, there was a presentation uh, of some exotic animal. This is in the San Francisco Bay Area, so they have money and, and you know, options. So it was something very interesting. It was like, mm. I don't know, like an aardvark or something. I don't know. I don't remember. <laughs> perfect. That's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> we got but, that's um, perfect. Okay. I got but it. they were, yeah. they were talking about how they were talking to, it was a group of kids. It was like a presentation for children, for school children. I was homeschooled at the time, I think. And uh, they started talking about, well, you know how we're animals, right? And all the kids are like, yes, we are animals. And I'm like, humans are not animals. <laughs> Right, like humans are not. You took animals. your little homeschooled my... self out. Hold on a minute, yeah. there, buddy. Well, I didn't. I didn't say anything. I, I was, you know, my, my parents, tr you know, raised me well. They're like, yeah. keep your opinions to yourself, <laughs> young buck. <laughs> uh, so until now, now you're free. Well, yes, yes. I'm no, I'm no longer a child, so now I can just mouth off. Uh, yes, to the detriment of everybody, myself first, first and foremost. But the idea there was that I, I was raised in a way to. Uh, to negate the pos the uh, connection between myself and the animal, because this is a reaction to Darwinianism. That's right. Yeah. And what's happening, and that's not good, because that that kind of approach to the natural world will will inevitably lead to you dominating it, or to you considering yourself not a good regent or steward, but a king who dominates for for his own benefit, right? A, a tyrant. And so that's what I that's what I love about this new this influx of these former animists into the 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 current Christian cultural sphere is that they they have this deep respect for nature the kind of respect that 
the crazy saints have, right? The ones that live out there with with the bears and yeah. Um, There's a reason know, for that. There's a yes. reason that it looks like that in the story. That's right. Yes, and that they're not just stories. That they're they are stories, but they're also history. They're also yeah, they're real. Well, yeah. whatever. Uh, I fell for it. Of course, they're real. But yeah, I know. <laughs> it's okay. I You're not going to get any arguments from me. All that stuff about real, <laughs> not real. I just I ignore it. <laughs> Save your opinion on that one, just for a second. I I had a similar experience. Um, I, again, with this restaurant we started, we do these dinners. It, it was it was it was pretty recently. I'll try to keep it so I'm not calling anybody out. But on one end yeah. of the table, you had a group of people who would come together. Now they wouldn't all know each other. It's a community table, so there's 20 people who don't always know each other. Uh, yeah. There were three or four that had come together, and two of them were celebrating um, a birthday, and they were clearly of how should we say um, uh, modern secular stripe. They were mm-hmm. together as women in some relationship, and they were mm-hmm. quite nice in making toasts. On mm-hmm. my end of the table were a group of a wonderful family, very nice. Uh, they were very, very evangelical. Yeah. Um, uh, very clear, uh, using a sort of a Baptist template of some sort. Yeah. Uh, and so the unity of the table was, shall we say, challenged. Yes. There, there were a moment, you know, I'm toasting to, you know, family and then to, it's the Georgian style. And yeah. what happened during, the conversation because I was closer to the to the Christian guys, the evangelical guys, mm-hmm. I could hear their feedback. And the thing you mm-hmm. just mentioned was which is the danger in dismissing the Theos or Anthros. Mm-hmm. They were dismissing Anthros. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because the other end of the table, perfectly nice people, but with clear political aspirations for whatever equality is this day and same-sex marriage and all that stuff. Yeah, I heard in their toasts a lot of humanity, a lot of theos, yeah, (laughs) a lot of beauty. And they could only hear the anthros, like the 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 part of the their toast, which is like they shouldn't be together. They're men and women. Right. I can't. And so the guys on my end started to say this, Nick. Mm-hmm. I'm not toasted to that. Now in Georgia, that's that's like that's like a that means you're gonna fight. Like yeah, yeah. You better have said something really bad about like your dead father. Okay. Right. <laughs> Otherwise, <laughs> I'm not gonna I'm not gonna not to whoa. And they were not toasting. I'm not toasting to that. I'm not toasting that. Wow, did it get. And I kept thinking, there's a way that this doesn't have to happen. Yeah. There's something else that we can talk about. And maybe it's but again it's, that universal. It's beyond. Theory. It's beyond both of those things, right? It's something yes. that that you that both can point to. Yes. So Martin Shaw mentioning him again. I just listened to a conversation where he was talking about um the Arthurian legends. He was about to retell the the Grail, one of the Grail legends. And um, in the conversation, it was a wonderful conversation. Uh, he's, he went out and said it. He said, all of you people out there, the, the stories you're going to have to tell other people, forget about the templates that you know. You need to tell the stories of the saints. You need to tell saints' lives. Like, that's the thing you got, you're going to have to go and do. These are, the, these are the templates, the stories that, because they transcend the petty they transcend the the weird reality, the things that right. that we bump up against all the time. Yeah, yeah, they do the thing that we're just talking about. Yes, because they did that in their own lives, right? So then the stories about them do the thing where they embody the, their presence 
in a way that recalls them in the particular, but also harks to the universal, right? So it does both. It does the that is it. the multiplicity right. thing, but it also does the universality thing, right? You need both. Is that the mystical? That's that's what's mystical about it, right? Is that it does both? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. That's an I've interesting had, question. I, I've been musing on that because again and again, the part that's and I think we talk well. It's one of my questions for you is. I catch a lot of friendly fire Mm -hmm. because I'm too light or something. And I won't hammer somebody if they don't say the right theological thing. Thank God. (laughs) I know I'm like the, you know, the goofy other end of the, of the conversation. Um, Good. I know because (laughs) I want to, right. I want to embody the actual reality that is, is first I am friend. There's no way out of that. And then second, I'll become, you know, something like logos. But first I'm friend. I'm like present in your world. I'm not going to, I don't want to fight you on that. And so the friendly fire part is there's like a lack of awareness that the mystical is found in both ends of the conversation. Yes. Yes, That's so good. So the same people who are going to give you that friendly fire are probably also not happy with people telling stories that are not the gospel Bingo. Right? Bingo. Because we need to transcend all that. But that doesn't work. It doesn't work. No, it doesn't work. It's also not evident in the cultures that we would call something like um, good at uh, truth or orthodoxy or love. Just call them old. Okay, good. I I like that on this show. They don't do that. No, all all of them have deep storytelling traditions ridiculous storytelling traditions the stories don't like uh, i'm gonna talk about the russian because that's the obvious that's the one that that i know very well Well, you would know it well yeah the russian fairy tales almost none of them talk about church god and if there are priests in there run because the fairy tales that have priests in them the priests are all terrible and they're probably more recent stories that aren't they don't come from the deep storytelling tradition of the early days that's why so the less religious they are probably the better they are for you in, in the Russian sense, it's really weird, but that it's because, weird. yeah, you, because the, well, I mean, what kind of a limited God do we have that he only animates the exalted and the high? That's not the Jesus that walked no. on earth and sat at tables with harlots. <laughs> wow. Right. That is just fantastic. I mean, culturally speaking, it's okay to be a, in this sense. Like, it's like, if you're telling those stories, you're with the commoners, right? You're with, you're like taking dirt and making eyes out of it. Man. Right? I couldn't, again, again, with our work. I mean, I've been to Georgian tables filled with Orthodox Christians, filled yeah. and pious ones. Yeah. They spe- they, it's a three or four hour dinner with 15, 20 toasts. And you know what? None of them, except for maybe the first one, is an explicit telling of mm-hmm. something, I don't know, priestly. And then, yep. and if you were an Orthodox orthobro heading to Georgia to get all that, to get all the orthobroness. Yep. They don't pull it off for you. <laughs> well, like, they, and I don't think they like you very much if you, if you come there. They don't understand you. They're like, why is that? Where are your roots, man? Where are your roots? Why are your roots flapping in the wind? Why aren't they on, underground holding onto soil? I, I think Russia is the same. I think people are like, oh, well, totally. hold on a minute. What are we doing right now? Why? We're not arguing about that. It's also a pearls before swine thing, too. It's like, you sure you want to do the pearls yeah, well, right that's, now? Okay, so that's a great point, right? So when you're going to one of these old countries, right, there are two levels of interaction. Right, there are two levels. There, there's the the level at the beginning, where it's emotionless, 
it's like, I don't know who you are. I'm going to yeah. be polite to you, but I don't, I have no idea who you are. A few hours later at the table, after you've eaten all their food and drunk their wine, it's a totally different person, totally different. a different reality, a different world. So I've had this conversation with Russians for almost decades now. They don't understand Americans because Americans don't have that. No. Americans don't have the two levels for the most part, unless they have a deep connection to an older tradition back in the back in the old country. So like straight up Americans who are, who don't have that connection, they generally don't have the two levels of interaction. It's usually all up here. So most Russians think Americans are all shallow because they wear their hearts on their sleeves because everything happens here at the, uh, at the level they're waiting where we're all for wearing them masks. To go to we've the ourselves uh, yes. They're waiting for them to go to the second level, but they've already, yeah. it's like, we shot everything at the beginning without saying anything dirty. Yeah, everything yeah. got unloaded. And now you're like, wait a minute, that's all we got? What's, yeah, what? where's where's the good stuff? <laughs> Hold on a second. I thought we were going to talk about the other stuff now. Yeah. Ah, this makes a ton of sense, Nick. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I, I, I hadn't thought about that. I mean, I used to I used to articulate that to my friends a lot more because I used to, uh, this is before I was married. I, this would, you know, come across to me a lot more because... Yeah, I've been meeting a lot of people that I didn't know in, you know, in my quest for a wife. <laughs> but, you know, now that you're married, it's kind of all part of, it's all intertwined with the fabric of everyday life. So you don't think yeah, about it as much. Yeah, that's a whole different thing. <laughs> um, tell yeah. us, will you do a, a, a cultural thing at being sort of half American, half Russian, or, or fully mm. both? Uh, yes. We get a lot of Eastern Europeans coming in, especially Russians to the restaurant and just in my life as a convert. And yeah. there's one thing that Russian women never fail to do ever. Mm-hmm. And that is within a very short time of even talking to them, point out how you are wrong. <laughs> First of all, I'm not crazy. Right. And second of all, no. it's not like it's personal, but it, it's a, it's a test of your manliness. Is that what was that? It's a test. Is that what's it's a test? It's a test of your manliness. Yeah. Like it's June. not the flip side of mansplaining. It's it's a it's a cultural test. So our yeah, I Look, love it, that it, you said it's not mansplaining. It's no. not mansplaining. No, that's not what it is. No, not at all. No, it, it's actually a gesture of respect. It's like John, why red hat? Head red hat yeah. looks funny. Why are you wearing this? <laughs> and then I'd be like, well, look, if if you answer that properly, right, the respect deepens. <laughs> <laughs> You're so spot on. It's ridiculous. So I, because I got a cold head hat and I like the shape of my head. And then they're like, very good. Okay, no problem. Next. <laughs> yes. yeah. I, I don't know why. I think it might have to do something with the fact that World War II, lot, you know, you lost there was a, a lot of men died. So women had to inhabit a more a more significant role, not just in the families, but in the in the larger social sphere. But also Russia's had a problem with um, alcohol for a very long time. So in general, the, and of course this kind of generalization is you're always, you're, it's very dangerous. I've heard this I think, though, I think there's something Russia. to it. I yeah, agree. no, it's, there's, you know, the Russian man uh, writ large over the past several hundred years is a problematic figure because he drinks so much. He's so a little the absent. woman has to be strong. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, yep. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, just tell us about your book before. I mean, we can keep going, but tell us, to t- First of all, I became a part of this really cool effort you have right now to put this yeah. out into the world. I can't wait to see it. Also, tell us about who's doing these uh, illustrations. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. So this is, this is, so your, your listeners may know that I'm 
slightly or mostly mad, uh, insa- insane. I'm not. I'm not happy with simple things. I'm not happy with. No, you're not. No, you're. Uh, I I have to complicate my life endlessly. So, uh, one of the ways I did that recently is I guess I didn't have enough excitement in my life, and which is crazy because this has been a very difficult year. <laughs> um, but um, I decided I was going to do a Kickstarter. Um, which normally takes about six months of advanced prep to do it properly, uh, in a month to do a Christmas themed thing, um, for this Christmas, which is, um, I'm not, I'm still not sure I'm going to be able to pull it off. Uh, it's the, the margins are like razor thin. So the idea is I have this new book that doesn't exist yet in physical form. I've been sending it out in uh, ebook form to people who sign up to my, to my newsletter as a kind of marketing ploy, but really it's just a kind of attempt to get more, more readers into, into the larger space of, of my fantasy uh, stories. Um, but I, I wanted, I wanted to make it into a physical object, but I was waiting for the right moment because there's something about it being exclusive for a while that people can't get it in any other way. So they're more likely to, um, you know, get it. Mm. And then somebody suggested to me that, uh, there's, there's a way of, um, that people around Christmas time really, they like the experience of gift giving, but it's very difficult, right? to find the right gift for people, especially for the, for people like me who are That's like, you know, don't true. just give me socks. <laughs> right. Yes, exactly. Like <laughs> so I'm like, well, what if there was a way of, of using my story, the physical object, like to make the, make a physical object and make a gift out of it that would be really unique and, and interesting for people who are readers, not necessarily readers of my book, but because giving a book is, is a wonderful thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, giving a book to somebody else is like giving a world to somebody else. It means you, there's something in there, something very deep that you want to share. It's, it's an, it's like, it's like a conversation between two hearts, right? So it's fraught with a lot of uh, potential ba- backlash, right? Because you don't know if the person's going to like it or if oh, they don't like it, terrifying. you're going to think, yeah, it's terrifying. right? <laughs> so what if there's a way of, of kind of mitigating that and putting it into a larger story that emphasizes the, the community aspect of it. And the story goes that in world war two, um, in Iceland, there was rationing everywhere, right? Um, so Christmas comes by in the, in the in the 1940s, and people have nothing to give to each other except books because paper wasn't rationed. So they they had a lot of books. So what they would what they started to do is to give books on Christmas and to to while away the time. They, what they started to do is just to read the books all night. Uh, so it became this Christmas tradition in Iceland where on Christmas it's traditional. I'm not sure that everybody does this, but there is this tradition where you give, you give books and everybody on Christmas Eve goes into their little nooks and reads books all night. <laughs> right. <laughs> Super cool. Yeah. So um, I thought, okay, well, why not kind of package that into, into a, into a gift? So I'm making a special edition hardcover version. What did they call it? Jobokoland? Jo it's called Yola Boca Flood. So Yola is, is Yule. That's Christmas book. Uh, so it's Christmas book flood is the uh, is the literal translation. So it's a, it's a flood of books on Christmas. Um, so I'm making a, a um, well. The, the thing is, I, I got other people to be involved, and it's it's kind of interesting how providence works. But okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna take a take an aside. I don't know if you'll appreciate this or not but do, do you have some, somebody banging on your on your door or i have children okay i have okay. children they're going absolutely nuts and i'm it. sorry i told them that i'm doing this but, but in the spirit of the old old world i think yes. this is probably a welcome right thing. there underfoot absolutely <laughs> yes so i'm not i'm not running out here and screaming at them because there's no point it's just there's no point it's all good it's all um good. And, 
Anyway, so like to get these people in on the madness required a supernatural. Um, uh, it required the spirit to get involved. Should we put it that way? And how okay. do I know this happened? Okay, I'll explain. So this is getting very esoteric. And so for those <laughs> those of your listeners who don't know about you know the Orthodox Church, I'm sorry, <laughs> but. Sometimes people think, okay, well, if you're talking about the spirit leading people, it's like huge splashy events, you know, like fl- right. flames over people's heads, right? right? Tongues, stuff like this. And I'm like, not always, right? So in 2007, was it? There, there was a meeting of the of the Russian church abroad, right? This is the part of the Russian church that broke off from Russia after the revolution and didn't want to get back together with the church in Russia because of ties with the communist state. And there was a lot of mutual um, suspicion, on, on both sides, right? And especially on the, on the side of the of the emigres who were like, you have not shed your connection to the Soviet past. You oh, are tainted for all time. Mm. So there was a there was a group of, of bishops and priests and lay people that got together to discuss whether or not reunification with Mother Church should happen. And something really weird happened. There was a lot of screaming back and forth for days. For days. And then something really strange happened. They they drafted a uh, a, a draft resolution. A small committee drafted a draft a, a a preliminary resolution that was then discussed paragraph by paragraph by the whole group, right? So they discussed the first paragraph, and everybody got so stuck on the particulars about which comma goes where that by the time they got to the end, they're like, "Yeah, that's fine. We got our questions about the commas resolved. We agree with that paragraph." They go to the next paragraph. So they went through the whole thing, and the entire community, the entire group of people that were not agreeing with anything, basically approved. The document, which was a document for unification, of the two. So at the end of, of interdicting, yes. so inter- at the end of it, Orthodox people. Uh, yes. So at the end, they get up. They're like, "Well, you guys have approved this," and everybody's like, "I guess we did." <laughs> so all these warring parties that had no intention of ever joining back, they all joined. For that moment, they're like, oh, "Okay, I guess that's what we did." That's how the spirit works. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's how the spirit works. So it's not like. It's not always fire and, 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 you know, it's like weird little coincidences that come together. Right. People are like, okay, I accept, right? So what ended up happening is both the illustrator, was Vesper Stamper. She's a recent convert to orthodoxy and a fantastic illustrator, like, you know, world-class. And Heather Paulington, who's a, um, she lives in, in England and she's a, a set designer and art director for major Hollywood franchises. Like, like this is, these people are like major talents, right? Mm-hmm. So. I've been in contact with them through through a, a, a community of, of uh, creative people uh, be, uh, who are together because of their interest in Jonathan Peugeot's work, and so I reached out to them and like, well, what do you think about this project? Would you be would you be interested? And both of them, in spite of me very clearly saying this year, they both assumed at some point that it was for next year, <laughs> which meant you know a year's worth of work. Yeah, 2024, 2023, 2024. Okay, not Christmas. Yes. Not this Christmas, but you know, like like a normal person plan it out way in advance and do this properly. I launched and then they're like, wait, what? Or one of them was like, wait, this year? And the other one was like, I don't know if I can do this. (laughs) But. You kept them? They're still there? They're still there. Yeah. So. I've oh, I've seen two really illustrations cool. already. They're they're incredible, and I had a wonderful meeting with uh, with Heather, who's going to be doing the cover and some interior design. This thing's going to be gorgeous. But the really cool thing is that so we're going to wrap it in a in a fantasy um, uh, printed map. So not not uh, wrapping paper, but an actual cloth map that has 
that has a oh that has a map gosh. on it. Uh, it, it be, yeah, and then it's going to be held together by a wax seal, so and with a special little stamp on it. So it's going to be pretty this unique. Is, and that's and the I, edition that I just ordered, guys. Go 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 yeah. do it uh, because listen, Nick, we're friends and you've been very kind to our work. And so here's the deal: I was going to do something. But I'll be perfectly honest when it said you got to see this, think of it for Christmas. And then it showed some of the illustrations. And, and basically, there was just a little hint of yeah, beauty or something. And it was I, I just clicked. I couldn't help it. It's really good. Yeah, well, it's it, it's uh, it's doing well. So, yeah. Good. Thank God. Good, man. Well, guys, check out sure. uh, Nicholas Kotar, Deacon Nick's, all his website. We'll put it up. We'll link it. And um, man, you're busy. At least you have the appearance of being really busy and you have kids who literally sounded trapped which is that's a whole nother job in and of itself it's a big house it's not like they shouldn't be trapped (laughs) they heard your voice i know how it goes and they're like that's where we're gonna make the most noise where papa is yeah right above my head and it's a low ceiling right i'm touching it right now so (laughs) that's what oh it is okay good well listen we do what we can man and you were wonderful as always so we'll see you thanks um, for having me on john (laughs) see you soon and have a great great uh uh uh, holidays brother and be thank you you too happy thanksgiving Okay. okay god bless take care well thanks nick wow did you guys hear his didn't you feel like maybe he had he had trapped his children. Maybe they were actually trapped by him and they were digging out. I thought I heard a saw. I thought I heard a saw blade. www.first-things.org is where you find out about First Things. That's who sponsors this podcast and some other folks as well. But First Things is a place where you can go to find out how to perhaps do aid most appropriately, especially aid that crosses cultures. So check us out and do consider this. Get online, become a recurring donor, and then join our wine and class club on Tuesday nights, an online course also simulcast in person from KP Restaurant. That's right. That's First Things Restaurant in Greenville, South Carolina. There's lots to find out online. Go online, become a recurring donor, or become a one-time donor and help us meet our $75,000 match. That's right. A very kind and wonderful family foundation has said you raise $75,000 by January 1st and we'll match it dollar for dollar. That's good dough for our kind of work. So to you guys, potential donors, please get on board. Come find us and learn all the languages we learn to speak, stuff like Bakua in Mozambique. Hey, we're looking for two field workers right now. You want to go to Mozambique? Let's do it. This is Why Are We Talking About Rabbits? Check us out, www.first-things.org. And as they say in West Africa, in Mali, the Malinke say, Kan Bufo, or greet your people. <laughs>